morning, church. <laughs> I was nervous. Guys, when I was over there playing during the ministry time, I was like, man, how am I going to transition this into a sermon? Dan did it for me. Thank you. <laughs> but Christ is risen. He is risen oh, man, a chipper bunch. I love it. Um, I'm using this headset microphone, not because it's cool, but because the stand is so small that if I only have one hand to read, arrange everything. So I just want you guys to know that it's because Chris Green used it. That's why. It's more anointed. So that's why I did it. This morning, we're going to talk about a worshiping community. So um, it's part of me is thinking, I don't really even need to preach because we did such a good job of this today. And then pastor, when, we, when he came up right after, most of what he prayed is what I'm going to preach. So if you listened before... If you're listening now, it will just be reiterating things that you've already heard. But as, as I mentioned on the first week, um, the Ancient Future Church, part of what this series is all about is getting us to see that we are part of something that has gone before us and that until the Lord's reappearing, we'll continue after. And that our job, as one of our professors in seminary said, is to live in the perpetual handoff of the baton. That we are always living in the handing off of the tradition. It's still in our hand, and but we don't get to make this up, is the point. So this morning we're going to talk about worship, and I'm going to be kind of all over the place in filling, filling the time, uh, because I think that there are just a number of really important things that we have to say, and the first is that when we're speaking about worship of the living and the holy God, we should never be too sure. <laughs> I should never be too sure of what I'm talking about because we are talking about a God who is living and active and a God who is on the move. And, and I, I want you to know that I don't come up here um, as a master, I come up here as someone who has humbly studied, and the more that I study and have for years as a worship leader, the more I kind of get lost in it, the more that I get lost in why we worship and what, what is happening to us and why it is important as a community that we worship. So I want you to know that I am speaking from a very sensitive and, hum and hopefully humble. You can't really declare that you're humble. I, I don't mean that. But, I, but what I am trying to communicate is that we should never be too certain when we speak about God in this way. Because almost every picture in scripture that we have of people worshiping is a picture of people bowing down and a people that can't even really look at this God because he is so holy and set apart and unique and different. The church is certainly more than Sunday morning worship. This is very important. But it is certainly not less than that. Y'all hear that? Yeah. Man. It's not really that profound. Um, it's not, but it's important for us to know that in an age where it is very, very common to want to be part of the church and to call ourselves believers based on the fact that Christ has given us new life and that we are doing our best to follow him, um, it is increasingly popular to not be a part of a local church. And my job this morning is not to condemn that, but to point out that worshiping together on Sunday mornings is a very important part of what we are called to do. That worship is what the church must do before we can do anything else. So Jesus in the Gospels, 
is interrogated by the Pharisees and they're trying to put him in a box and they say, so which commandment is the greatest? And Jesus in his brilliant way, as always, trumps the Pharisees because he is truth and they're trying to learn truth. And Jesus says to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And the picture that we see in the entirety of scripture is that as much as we want to separate these things, we really can't. That we can't worship, that, that a worship of God that does not include worship or love of neighbor is inept, it's anemic, it's not, it's not full, it's not right, it's not faithful. That if we are attempting to worship God without loving our neighbor, then we're not really worshiping God rightly. And if there is one thing we can be certain about from the Old Testament, it is that God does care about how we worship him. God cares very much. But also, if we try and invert those and we try and love neighbor without worshiping God, then we end up in the power of ourselves, we end up in the secular age that cares much about social justice and much about so-called love, but really does not know even the source you know, so these are inextricably, meaning you cannot separate them tied together. But I do think it's important that love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is first. And I would submit to you today that that is Jesus saying, learn to worship God well. That Jesus is saying, learn to worship God before you go out and you try and help and love your neighbor. And I think this morning was even a little picture of that, right? We're in the presence of God and we are convicted by the words of songs. We're reminded about his work. We're reminded about who he is. I mean, we sang about a wide variety of things this morning. And then what flowed out of that is recognition of the people around us. This was a perfect example and it was not planned. So great job, Pastor Chase. <laughs> But seriously, I think that that is the picture of what coming together on Sunday mornings really is supposed to be about. It's as we look at Christ, there is the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, that in the end says, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And I will, I will give credit to Chris Green just in the chance that he actually listens to this. He's the one who told me this. But he said, I think that that line is misguided because we don't want the things of the earth to grow strangely dim. We want them to be illuminated in the way that Christ sees them. So God doesn't want us to leave this place and be blind to one another and blind to the world. He wants us to go out from this place and see the world as he sees it, not as we saw it when we came into this place. Thank you, Everett. And Joe gave me a strong head nod, so thank you, Joe. Um, so let's just start with some, some rudimentary stuff that honestly, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard much of what I'm going to say today. And preaching is not about being profound. It's about proclamation. It's about being reminded of who God is and what he has asked of us and what he has made possible for us through the life of Christ. So what do I mean when I say worship? I mean, any act of recognizing worth and responding by giving our allegiance and trust. So it is the act of recognizing worth and responding to that recognition by giving our allegiance and our trust. And I have purposely worshiping creatures, but we don't have to worship God. 
right? We all know this, but it has to be said that you cannot really talk about worship from scripture without also talking about idolatry because the two are always connected, especially in the Old Testament. That worship of God, right worship of God, is always over and against worshiping other things, right? It's not that we either choose to worship God or we don't worship at all. It's we choose to worship God or we choose to worship something that the principalities and the powers of this world have elevated that are, as Dan said in his offering uh, exhortation, that we want to replace source with resource, right? So idolatry is the attempt to make resources seem as if they are the source. And and those resources are not just money. Money is a primary one that James speaks about, but these are anything. And I have a list here. I am all over my notes right now, but it seems to be coherent. So I'm going with it, okay? Also, let me just give a clarification. And if all I get through is the introduction, I think those are the most important things today. That by speaking about worship, I do not mean speaking about singing. I mean speaking about all that we do here in this space, that when we gather, specifically on Sunday mornings, I'm not calling other things not worship, I'm just not talking about them today. I'm talking about the worship of the corporate gathering as it has been on Sunday mornings for over 2,000 years, which certainly includes singing, but it also includes what you're doing right now, hopefully being open to receiving the proclamation of the gospel over your lives. If you want to be right and faithful worshipers, do so in Jesus' name. Amen. It also includes when Pastor Jade has people stand up with needs. It includes taking that seriously, that worship and love of neighbor, right? These things are inextricably connected. It's a big word, but I don't know a better word. They're connected in a way that we cannot separate them. It includes coming to the table. That is an act of worship, giving our money. These are things that we say week after week, and I'm gonna get into them a little bit more. Um, A few things that, that need to get said about worship. One is that the Bible is diverse in the way that it speaks of worship. So I've studied this for years and been under many people who have taught about worship. And we teach with so much certitude from one passage of scripture. But what we have to realize is that the Bible gives us the story, the progressive revelation of people learning how to worship God. It, It is not, this is the one primary way. Actually, we see that in the Pentateuch, right? But then by the time we get to the Psalms and the prophets, God is saying, actually, I know I said that, but that's not really what I want. What I really want is your heart to be engaged in these things and for you to take care of widows and orphans. This sounds a lot like love of neighbor, right? I want you to take care of the people around you. I want you to notice. I don't really care that you're going through the motions of coming to these festivals and making these sacrifices. Those were a way to get you to understand the worship that I desire. So the Bible is diverse in the way that it speaks about worship. That's number one. Number two, Worship is not a means to something else. And uh, Miss, Miss Val actually validated this point here. My side note is, worship is not pragmatic. She said in pre-service prayer, I am a pragmatist. And I, it is helpful for me when that is confronted in worship. And I will agree with her. I am a pragmatist. I look at reality. I, it is hard for me to... Dr- 
to dream, and to think beyond reality. But worship is, as Marva Dunn says, it is a royal waste of time. We're going to get into this in a little bit in John 12. And Pastor Jade, like I said, he already touched on it about breaking our alabaster box on Jesus. But worship is not pragmatic. It is not a means to an end. I've heard this. I've been in places where worship is talked about as a number of things. One, the prelude to the sermon, right? Because it comes before the sermon. And Usually I'm not preaching, so usually what, is that, what does that make the worship team feel, you know? And also, what does that make God feel? Like, think about that. Like, Lord, it's more important that I proclaim your word than your people actually speak to you. That, think about what that communicates, right? But worship is, is also, it's not a means to get God to do what we think he should do. So, so worship, we don't worship God hoping that if we are just exuberant enough that God will come through for us in the way that we think that we really need. That, that is talked about in scripture. You know where? It's talked about when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. The Baal worshipers do that. The Baal worshipers say, no, just give us a little more time. Just let us have a little more energy. Just let us be a little more exuberant. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be exuberant before the Lord. What I'm saying is that's not necessarily an indicator of what's actually going on inside of you. And the moment it becomes about manipulating God to do what we want him to do, it is therefore idolatry. And it is called as such in the Bible. This is not from me. This is scripture. Um, Lastly, things that need to get said before we actually get into the word is that God does not need our worship. And Chris Green hit on this a few weeks ago that, that, and actually I think it was the first time that he preached. He said, God does not create out of need. There were not three members of the Trinity in heaven and they said, you know what, we really, we really need four of us so to get what we really want done. So we're going to create humans to be the fourth member of the Trinity. No, no, no. God does not create out of need. Everything God does, hear me. If you hear nothing else, hear this. God does out of pure gift. That everything God does flows out of him as pure gift. That God does not need our word. God is not Gaston in heaven hearing our compliments going, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's not what God does in worship. He's not narcissistic. God is humble. And we see that in Christ. We see that in Philippians 2, that God is a humble God who does not need our worship. And he does not respond to our worship by saying, oh, you shouldn't have, thank you. No, God responds to our worship by drawing us into communion with himself and making us in the image of Christ. That God somehow takes our worship, and I don't really like this word, but I don't have a better one, He and uses it to get things done in the earth that are in accordance with his will. And I, I don't know exactly how that happens, but we see throughout scripture that people worship and the cosmos are changed, that the principalities and the powers are confronted, that when we worship God rightly, he somehow 
and in some way takes it and does something with it that then in turn shapes us and blesses us. And as we receive revelation, it is this great cycle that we receive revelation and we worship in turn. And then as we're worshiping and singing things like, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, and Jesus comes alive to us, then we keep responding in worship. And then we receive revelation and we respond in worship. And this is the way that it works throughout scripture. And we see that especially in the book of Revelation where we will go in just a minute. So, like I said in the beginning, we are, we are not unique in that we worship, but in whom we worship. And this is part of what God is trying to do in the Old Testament, that overwhelmingly God takes practices and takes things that this people called Israel know and then says, I'm kind of like this, but not really. I'm kind of like this, but not really. Because God is trying to reveal to them who lived in a culture where it was common to worship idols and small g gods, but he's trying to teach them that I'm... I'm in some ways like these gods, but like in so many ways, I'm not like these gods that you can't comprehend. And that's what we see in the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments were not something that was unique to the people of Israel, that in Egypt and in Babylon and Assyria, they had things that were similar to the Ten Commandments. So God gives them something that is similar, but the content of the Ten Commandments reveals this God is not like any of these other gods. That this, this God requires exclusivity, right? Most of the gods of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, don't, they don't care how many. There's a worship God, there's a fertility God, there's a God for war, there's a God for you know, harvest, there's a God for all these things. But the God of Israel says, no, 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 here's the thing. If you worship me, you only worship me. That is the God that we worship, that we have been brought into the worship of this living God that is unlike any of the other small g gods that there are. I want to read just a couple of quick verses here from Psalm 115. Uh, I'm going to speed through this. It says, not to us, O Lord, but to you, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Why do the nations say to Israel, where is their God? For our God is in heaven, this is now David responding, for our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. What a wonderfully sarcastic answer, I love that. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, this is important. They have eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, they have noses but cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so all who trust in them. What is the overarching, the overwhelming point of this psalm? Is that though our God is not seen, God, the one that we serve, is actually the substance of what these gods appear to be, right? These gods have eyes, but they can't actually see. There is the appearance of, but no substance, and David is saying, our God is lacking some of the appearance, of course, until we see Christ. Because our God is invisible. At this point, there has not yet been Christ. But our God is the actual living God. And those who worship will become like the gods that they worship. So what David is really saying is that you're worshiping dead gods and you are becoming dead. And that as we worship the living God, his life 
takes root inside of us and grows. And this is what the New Testament calls new creation, right? That as we worship God, we are brought into his life and his life becomes our life. That our God is not like these other gods, but you guys get the point. So moving right along. Um, I want us to look together at the book of Revelation chapter five for just a couple of minutes, that there, there are a number of passages in scripture that give us snapshots about worship, but I think that this is, for one, one of the most robust, and I also think that it addresses pertinent issues for us today. So I'm going to try in, in two minutes, set up the book of Revelation. Because I think for most of us, and, and this is dangerous, guys, the last time I preached on worship from Revelation, some things happened for y'all who, uh, who were around back then. Uh, so this is, this is a little daring for me, okay? Yes, those of you who remember. Um, but the book of Revelation is often very daunting to us because we don't know how to read it. And I would even put myself in that category, category, even after studying, there's still a number of things in the book of Revelation that are confusing and don't make a lot of sense. But overwhelmingly, what it is about is the revelation of the triumph of Jesus Christ over and against the empires and the powers and principalities of the world. That revelation is quite literally the revealing of Jesus Christ as the ultimate one who triumphs, who triumphs over all of these other idols and things that claim that they are running the world and ruling the world, that Jesus, this is the revelation, that Jesus is actually the one. And, it's, and he doesn't do it in the way that you think. So I'm going to start right at the beginning of chapter 5. And it says, this is John speaking, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, so who is on the throne? The Father is on the throne. And the right hand signifies authority, power. So in the right hand of the Father, uh, I see him on the throne with a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break open the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll to look inside it. Okay, pause. So what, what is happening and why is it important? Like we hear about this scroll and I think we just assume it's a scroll. Like it's a scroll. But what's on the scroll is what's important. And most scholars believe that what John is trying to get across here is that what's on the scroll is God's plan for saving and redeeming and ruling the world. And so John is saying, I'm freaking out a little bit because God's nobody can enact God's plans for the earth. And that's why this matters. That's what this whole scroll thing is about, okay? So it says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. But then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So we're going to stop right there. So John is, is in this vision, and he's realizing that God has the scroll in his hand of authority, and the scroll is his plan for saving and ruling the world. But there's no one actually capable of opening the scroll or executing its plans until they recognize 
behold, there is a lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah. They call him the lion of the tribe of Judah, but when they actually see him, it's a lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the phrase that brings continuity from the Old Testament. So they look and they go, ah, this is he. They don't actually see a lion, they see a lamb, but that language helps them go, oh, this is who they've always been talking about. This is who from Abraham to Moses to David to the other kings, this is who they were talking about. This is the Messiah. But when they see him, he's actually a slain lamb. And this is why we worship Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who can and has redeemed mankind and instituted the plans that God had to seek and to save those who were lost and to restore creation to its good purpose. And this is why we worship Jesus. So we're gonna skip a few verses and uh, then we're gonna keep reading. So in verse eight, and when he had taken it, meaning the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, who, with, uh, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And I think that this is incredibly important, that there is this understanding throughout all of Scripture that as we come into Revelation, our response is worship. That all worship is response to an invitation initiated by God that we can only worship God because he has chosen to reveal himself, right? We cannot worship a God that we know not of. So there is this revelation of this is he, the lamb that was slain is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then they fall on their faces and worship and sing. And I don't think it's ironic that they sing a new song. And I want us to open, open our minds a little bit that that doesn't mean that we literally have to sing new songs, but what it means is that as revelation comes alive inside of us, that our response is that we then worship in a new way. That even if we're doing the same practices, we're coming to the same table, we're putting our offering in the same bucket, we're coming in the same doors. We have a five-year lease on this place, we're gonna be coming through the same doors for five years. But we worship in a new way when Christ is revealed to us. And that's why we do all of the things that we do in this place. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump here to the end because we're coming, coming uh, close to the end of our time together. So why do we do some of these things? We are rehearsing some of these scenes from the book of Revelation and from elsewhere in scripture as a foretaste of what eternity will be like. And we gather in this place for one, to protest against and to resist these other idols that are vying for our worship. There are, and I've got, I wrote down a handful of, him, of these because I think it's easy to hear language like this and go, yeah, smite those idols. Until we realize what the idols in our lives are. So here's a few. Productivity. Yeah, I thought so. I started with the ones that, uh, that are hardest for me first, okay? So productivity, entertainment, money and possessions, power and control, self-preservation. Fill in the blank in your life. 
But these are some of the idols that the powers and the principalities that Paul talks about throughout the New Testament, they prop these things up that are, as Dan said, they are resources. And they get us to buy into the belief that though they have eyes, they can see. But we know from Psalm 115 that these are just resources, that these are not the source of our happiness or our fulfillment or the life that God has promised us, that they are resources to be used when they are in line beneath God for our lives. And so these are some of the idols, right? that we come together on Sunday morning to protest against the powers and the principalities that are constantly propping these things up through marketing, through TV commercials and billboards, through our job, through, through uh, bonuses and things. And, and hear me, resources are a wonderful thing when they are resources. But throughout our week, we are being bombarded with messages that are telling us resources are our source, that they are the source of our life, that they are the source of our happiness and our fulfillment. So part of what we do when we gather in this place is we are protesting against that. We're coming into a place where we believe that God has invited us to stand and sing to a God we cannot see. Think about, I talked about in the first message how so much of this is foolishness, that it is a royal waste of time. And to the world, it is. And it was when Mary broke her alabaster box on the feet of Jesus. And here's an interesting point that I, that I want to point out. One of the things that, that I think we have to resist is the idea that we come to this place to be spiritual self-feeders so that we can leave this place and be sustained for the next six days on our own. But ultimately... I think that it is incredibly important that we come because our worship, though it is only ever unto God, hear me, we never are to worship anyone but God, but our worship has effects on the people around us. But think about that story in John chapter 12 where Mary breaks open the nard on Jesus' feet and what happens with Judas and some of the other disciples? They immediately say, Jesus, why did you let her do this? This was such a, quote-unquote, royal waste of time, right? And then Judas says, I could have used this money to feed the poor. And then in my Bible, I don't know about yours, there are parentheses that say, because Judas had been helping himself to the money in the money bags, that Mary's worship provoked within Judas this realization that we get to see that Judas is actually worshiping money. That Mary's worship, Mary was not concerned with Judas. She wasn't going, I'm going to do this to tick off Judas or point. But this is part of the beauty of what happens in corporate worship is that we are convicted and things are provoked within us that we didn't know we, that were there. That we come in here and every time someone gets up to give the offering, we feel this bitterness inside of us. And we feel this urge to resist and we feel this urge to clinch or all we can think about is our needs. I think maybe the Lord is highlighting that ultimately we have become dependent on money. Or we don't like to sing. Or we don't like to sing these hymns that have all these words about the cross. The cross is finished. The cross is in the past. We don't, why do we need to sing about that anymore? Why don't we just sing about the resurrection? 
Because the cross is the basis for how we are to live our lives. We are to live in a cruciform way where we are poured out for the people around us as a drink offering, as Paul says. That there are a number of ways that when we come into this place, we are opening ourselves up to be provoked, to be convicted, to be utilized, to be given to the people around us. That is why we gather and we don't just worship in our prayer closets. One of the things in closing that I think is so fascinating when we examine the life of Jesus is that we regularly see Jesus go away to pray and to to worship and to be with the Father. But what seems to me to be right and consistent with the rest of the Gospels is that Jesus goes away to be strengthened and built up so that when he's with other people, he has something to give and to draw on that is not from himself, but from the Father. And I think Paul gives us this imagery that we are pieces made for the body, that the body is not for the individual pieces. And how often do we think about this gathering as a way to propel us for our own individual good, as opposed to everything that I do Monday through Saturday to build myself up in the Lord is so that on Sunday morning when people come in and they have needs, that I'm ready to be in tune with the Holy Spirit so that I can hear a word for them. I mean, I'll be honest, this is not what I think about. This is, this is not always the way that I come into this place. And I'm confessing to you, that's a problem. We together have to learn that God has invited us here to be with him, that we might act, but always as a response to what he has already done. We worship also, and I'm just going to kind of blast through these and then we're going to come to the table. We worship to recenter and resituate our lives around the truth that Jesus is Lord. We worship to be shaped by the truth and to resist the powers. We worship to get the gospel said. We worship to proclaim the gospel because as Pastor Jada said dozens of times from this stage that the gospel is not just an evangelistic tool that we need the gospel proclaimed over us. And lastly, we worship as a renewal of our commitment to God and his people. Communion attendants, if you would get ready and come. And Joe, if you would come play some guitar for me, my friend. Joe might have to have a replacement in the communion line. I'm gonna read a few verses here, just setting up the table and what happens here. One of the things that we believe at Antioch is that this is a quote-unquote sacrament. And the word sacrament is a fancy theological word that really just means it is a physical way that God transmits his grace to us. And we as Charismatics and Pentecostals already believe in this kind of stuff. We believe in the laying on of hands. We believe in the incarnation. Jesus, the ultimate gift, was given as a physical child. We believe in things like prayer cloths and stuff like that, that we already are set up to believe in this, but sometimes that word scares us a little bit. So when we say that this is a holy sacrament, all we mean is that Jesus has promised to meet us here even if we don't feel him or sense him that this is his gift to us, that when Jesus left and was ascended, Jesus gave us a prayer and a practice. 
And that prayer is the Lord's prayer, which we prayed already today. And this is the practice. In John 6, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds me on will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So as we come to the table, one of the things that we are declaring is that Jesus's body given on the cross is still today enough for us. That that he is our sustenance, that we are dependent and needy creatures. And we were designed to be that way. And so one of the things that we do every week is we come to this table and we believe that this is both a symbol and a reality of us symbolically receiving Jesus, but we also believe that he is actually present in this act, that Jesus is doing something in us as a body when we participate. So if you would stand with me and exit out of your rows on the left side, come forward.